Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. I'm Peter Moore. Today I'll be talking to the great Ukrainian historian Serhii Plokhi. Serhii is a professor of history at Harvard University. He's best known as a writer, though, for his Bailey Gifford Prize winning account of the Chernobyl nuclear catastrophe of 1986. When that book was published just a few years ago, Chernobyl seemed a uniquely disturbing tragedy for the people of Ukraine. Very few foresaw the scale and intensity of the conflict that was coming. This month, Serhii's new book, The Russo-Ukrainian War, was released. It gives the insider's account of the historical forces and political decisions that lie behind the war. I spoke to Serhii about this book and about one crucial year in the story just the other day. Serhii Plochi, welcome to Travels Through Time. You open your book, the Russia-Ukrainian war with an account of February 2022. And you describe your uncertainty about what was going to happen. We now know exactly what Vladimir Putin was plotting back then. But does this sense of uncertainty remain? Do you have any sense of what is going to happen next? Uh, first of all, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be, to be on this programme. I would say that there is much more certainty today than there was on February 2022. That's the, the night with which I start the book, describe the book. I was in Vienna at that time. The big question was whether whether there would be invasion or not, no invasion. But now we know that invasion did happen. Another big and huge question was whether Ukraine would survive before the few days or maybe few weeks because the really consensus uh, between different intelligence services from Moscow to Washington to London to Brussels was that Ukraine would not last as a state uh, for more than uh, a couple of weeks, that the Ukrainian army would not be able to fight for more than a couple of weeks, that Kyiv would fall within a few days. And uh, now we have much more certainty. We know that they, they keep fighting. They, they didn't collapse in February, they didn't collapse in March, in April. And uh, then starting, starting last fall, uh, they went on counteroffensive. So in March, they already defeated the Russian uh, invading forces near Kyiv. In the fall, they launched counteroffensive in the east. By November, so that was September, by November, they, they pushed the Russians on the left bank of Dnieper uh, in southern Ukraine. Uh, there is still a lot of uncertainty around. Uh, today, everyone everyone who looks at Ukraine is interested in the war, writes and talks about the uh, future Ukrainian counteroffensive. And we don't know how it will turn out. But uh, we already know answer to the question of how the Russian winter offensive turned out. It, 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 it produced no results. Uh, so a lot of things uncertain, but there is much less uncertainty than it was back in February 
um, in February of 2022. Uh, so in, in Ukraine, and, and I talk certainly to, to people in Ukraine, there is, there is a sense of, of course, of a lot of exhaustion. The war goes on really for a long period of time. But there is also the level of, of uh, I would say, even certainty in terms of the overall victory. Again, different people understand victory in different ways. Uh, but again, more certainty today than there was certainty back in February of 2022. What we're going to do in this conversation over the next hour or so is delve into the long historical roots of the war, which is really what you've laid out very clearly in the book. But before we get to this book, I wanted to ask you a few questions connected to one of your previous books on uh, Chernobyl, The History of a Tragedy. And first, I remember reading this book a few years ago, and one thing that really, really struck me, and I've spoken to people about since, is this feature of Soviet culture at the time, this inability to confront difficult truths, to tell superiors things they do not want to hear. Back then, of course, you were talking with regards to a dangerous nuclear reactor, and no one wants to be the person to put their hand up and say, hang on, we have something dreadful here. There's a calamity about to happen. But bearing that in mind and watching what's happened with the Russian military over the last year, it strikes me that the same culture is completely pervasive still. They cannot, even today, acknowledge the fact that things are not going to plan. Is that correct? It is correct. And it's also very interesting that, yes, indeed, that's that's feature of the political culture, Soviet political culture that was present at the time of Chernobyl, and it continues now in the Russian political culture. But I describe it separately in those two books, and you're the first one who made this connection. I, I didn't think about that connection. I get these questions about um, the, the nature of the of the um, Putin's miscalculation, Russian miscalculation, that the intelligence was certainly bringing him only things that the boss wanted to hear. Uh, but uh, uh, somehow in my mind, I never made that connection to Chernobyl. And I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. That's that's the same phenomenon that I'm, I describe in those two books. Mm, it really did strike me. I mean, there was a point just a few weeks ago when um, some of those who were involved in those negotiations really early on in the war to broker some kind of peace settlement. Um, on the Ukrainian side, they went to the Russians and they said, listen, we know that you've had enormous military casualties in these first few weeks. And their answer was, we've not had any casualties. Again, do you see what I mean? It's that inability to confront truth. Yes, and and another another part of that story is that Members of the Russian delegation really had no autonomy whatsoever in terms of uh, um, either accepting or rejecting of any of the Ukrainian proposals or positions. And uh, when you look at the situation on the battlefield, uh, from what we gather from, from people who are on the front lines, from the military experts, there are very two different armies fighting there. On the one hand, both of them and the most senior officers started to to serve under under the Soviet Union, but uh, the Russian army is still very Soviet army. It's top down. The, the commanders on the ground really not just not encouraged; they're discouraged. They're punished for making decisions of their own. 
and uh, Ukrainian army is fighting very differently because because that initiative is is now uh, welcomed from from the senior commanders and and, and junior commanders as well. So we really we really are talking today about Russia being a successor to the Soviet Union, not only in terms of taking over some say today illegitimately the position of the Security Council, but also in the continuation of the uh, elements of the political culture and military culture. Mm -hmm. Let's stay in 1986 for one moment, because I wanted to ask you a question just really to help our Western appreciation of, of this split. If you think back to the moment of the explosion of that nuclear power plant, do you think that any of those characters who were involved in that story, someone like uh, Leonid Toktunov, for example, would they have ever envisaged in their wildest dreams a war like this happening? Or has there been a sense of inevitability that there was going to be some kind of conflict at some point? I, I'm absolutely certain that they never imagined anything of that sort happening. Many of them, uh, including Toktunov, they they came from from Russia. They, they were educated uh, the um, Russian capitals of Moscow and, and Leningrad and other places. The nuclear industry was the really in many ways a classic imperial industry in the sense that the, the, all the decisions were made in the in the capital. The people who came to those areas in the in the provinces or semi colonies. Uh, were coming from the center, were very highly educated. And uh, the idea that there could be, could be some sort of military conflict was unimaginable. Interesting thing, fast forward to the year 2022, the first day of the Russian aggression, the, the all-out aggression against Ukraine. The Russian troops take over the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and now it's the children of the people like Doktunov and others, some of them born in Russia and coming from Russia, who are uh, mobilizing and marching under Ukrainian flags, trying to, to, to protect their city, fight, fight against, against Russian troops. And that's, that's an interesting transformation uh, in the sense that those people who ended up in Ukraine and then their children, and they adopted already elements of different political culture. And it's they, they speak Russian. Many of them consider themselves to be Russian. But they were they became the patriots of Ukraine in a sense of relationship to a particular institutions, democratic institutions, that Russia now came to take away from, from them. And um, one, one of the uh, people who was right at the center of the events of 2022 and who since then gave a lot of interviews, uh, Valery Semyonov, uh, born, born in Russia, came, came with his parents to, to Chernobyl soon after the Chernobyl uh, accident of 1986, and is, is a staunch Ukrainian patriot who was really serving as a sort of mediator between the Russian invading army in 2022, and the the uh, personnel of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. So the, the answer is no. I don't think anyone in '86 could imagine that. But by the year 2022, the this very international in its origins 
group of, of scholars and uh, nuclear operators, they made a very clear choice on which side they were. And the choice was not made on the, origin, on the basis of their origins or on the basis of their language. The choice was made on the, on the ideas and identity associated with those ideas. And the key idea was, was freedom and democracy. Which in a way, almost, if we're benchmarking um, or we're using those um, dates as bookends, 1986, 2022, something obviously tremendously important happened within that period of time. We're going to get on to that in specific in a moment. But just, I wanted to engage with one argument that I've seen made quite often in the West, and I just wanted to get your perspective on this, is that um, we, if we, if I can use that collective term for us in the West, bear some responsibility for what happened because there was too much expansion eastwards of NATO in in the 1990s, went on into the 2000s. Russia has always been neurotic about its safety and it was bound to have some reaction. I saw that argument was being made just yesterday. I, when, when I was reading your book, I thought it was very interesting that you um, you make this point that in connection again with the um, giving up of the nuclear weapons that, that Ukraine had, it had to find solace and safety in somewhere. And it looked to NATO. But do you have any thoughts about that that you could expand on? Uh, NATO uh, expanded to the east uh, but the driving force was not NATO generals or not the politicians of the Western countries. They were named and shamed by the leaders of East European countries like Poland, Lech Walesa, by Václav Havel. The, really the beacons of democracy and, and uh, the, the really fighters against, against communism who knew something in the early 1990s that the West didn't know or didn't want to know, that uh, Russia historically was a threat to those countries. They realized that historically that was their moment to uh, assure the, the uh, safety and security uh, by integrating into the Western institutions or organizations. They knew history. They looked at, at, that, at that moment as a historic moment. No one in the West actually looked at that that way. The horizon was next elections, parliamentary elections or, or presidential elections. That was a very different historical horizon for the leaders of East European countries, all of them. So the expansion of NATO is the uh, attempt of the former uh, satellites and clients of the so-called captive nations to run away from their former master as far as they could do. They couldn't change geography, but they changed the, the security arrangement. Uh, so that's, the, that's what happened. It's not the fault of the West that the countries further to the East wanted, wanted to join the West. But uh, on the other hand, certainly the, there is a lot of things that uh, the collective West has to look at critically. And uh, you mentioned the Budapest Memorandum, 1994. Uh, Ukraine inherited the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world from, from the Soviet Union. And it was pressured by the United States, 
mostly, but also by, by, by the West, to give up those nuclear weapons at the time when Russia was making territorial claims on the territory of Ukraine, or Crimea in particular, and to add uh, uh, insult to injury, Ukraine was forced to ship those nuclear weapons to Russia. Followed all of that was creation of an enormous security vacuum in the center of Europe, geographic center of Europe. Nuclear weapons are there, the way how they function since 1945, it's about deterrence. So the deterrence element was not there. Security vacuum was there. Russia continued to make territorial claims. And to deal with this situation, a piece of paper was offered called Budapest Memorandum that promised everything and, and gave guarantees for nothing. I, I think about that as if we're sitting now in a room and in this or in some other wall, someone just punched a huge wall and then just covered it with wallpaper called Budapest Memorandum and said, okay, things are good, nice, let, let's move and then the wall collapses, the building collapses, and everyone is surprised how how that could happen. The, the piece of paper was so wonderful. Mm-hmm. It, it, it looked so beautifully. So this is just one of cases of, of the, this magical thinking, maybe visual thinking, mm-hmm. where you, you, you really punch a hole and then pretend that it is not there. Mm-hmm. Another idea from the book I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on, it might not be as familiar to to our listeners, but it's certainly very familiar to Russians and particularly um, Vladimir Putin, which is the EU and not the European Union, the Eurasian Union, which I think is a really important concept that we should hold in our heads, because this is what, during the 2000s, you know, right up to 2014, this was really his dream of how geopolitics should develop, isn't it? What was the... What was the if uh, you want to explain the war... Uh, by um, using names of particular organizations. Uh, The right names to use will not be NATO and will not be European Union. The the most important term is Eurasian Union because that's how this war started. It didn't start in February of 2022. By that time, it was already eight years old. It started in February 2014 with the Russian Special Operations Units taking over the building of the Crimean Parliament, of the Crimean government, dragging in the Crimean deputies to vote for what then was presented as the changes to the to the constitution of the Crimea, not, not even separation from Ukraine, not joining Russia. So it was a military operation. And why, why did it happen in, in 2014? The answer is that Ukraine was determined to sign association agreement with European Union, not membership, association agreement with European Union. But once any country signs that agreement, it becomes not eligible to join any other similar organization, trade organization, or otherwise. So what that meant was that Ukrainians by sign association agreement was de facto living the sphere of influence of Russia. All the plans of Vladimir Putin to rebuild uh, um, it, his, his control, Moscow's control over the post-Soviet space was suddenly endangered. And that was his vision. That was his plan. 
His vision was multipolar world in which Russia is one of the poles on par with China and European Union. The only way for Russia to perform that role would be by mobilizing in some form the resources of the former Soviet Union, the post-Soviet space. Ukraine, the second largest post-Soviet republic, was absolutely crucial for the realization of that, that plan. Soviet Union fell in 91 on the issue of Ukraine. We can discuss that further. But it also, any plans to rebuild that, that, that influence depended on Ukraine. Simple reason, second largest after Russia Republic in terms of the population, in terms of the economic output, plus historically and culturally uh, really close to Russia. Uh, it's, it's Slavic like, like Russia is, the, the, the culturally it's uh, Orthodox Christian tradition. Uh, so um, the U- Ukraine, Ukraine was important for the fall of the Soviet Union. Ukraine became important for Putin's efforts to reestablish Russian control over the post-Soviet space. So not NATO, not European Union, Eurasian Union. This, these two words are the most important words to keep in mind thinking about the origins of this war. That's brilliantly explained. Let's go back though. Let's go back to the moment, and I mean, we couldn't go all the way back to Vladimir and Volodymyr, but we won't, we won't try doing that today. It's a long, long history, but there's one crucial year we're going to look at today. So let me ask you the question, if you could travel back through time to a particular year, for the purposes of today at least, um, which year would you go back to? Yes, the, 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 there is, of course, uh, a desire to go all the way back to Kiev and Rus and, <laughs> and, and start there. But I, I, will, I, I will go to one year which is certainly very important for, for understanding the origins of this war, understanding the end of the Cold War, understanding the history of the fall of the Soviet Union. And that's year 1991. Exactly. Uh, I mean, this is such a central pillar of the argument of your book, isn't it? That the war today is very, very much connected, if not a continuation of the fall of the USSR, which happened in 1991. We kind of know that history, but probably I don't think it's known in Britain in the kind of detail that certainly that you lay out in the book, because there were these kind of, I suppose, big headline events that we these moments that we remember, there were a few things that were quite puzzling that happened that year as well. And you you frame this actually very early on in your book when you say, why did they not fight in 1991? Why did Russia forego war to preserve the Soviet Soviet Union of the late 1980s and early 1990s? Um, There's a context to everything, and hopefully we'll get into that a little bit today. But um, just tell me, to begin with, do you remember? What do you remember of 1991 yourself? Yes, the, the story of this war really begins even earlier with the start of the disintegration of the Russian Empire in 1917-1918. And then it was stitched together by the Bolsheviks and fell apart again in 1991. Uh, I, of course, was not around in 1917, <laughs> so I can't, I can't talk about that as, as, as a participant or a witness, but, but I, was, I was there in 1991. And um, the story of 1991 is it's maybe the most fascinating 
fascinating years in, in the in history of the second half of the 20th century. Um, the, the, there was American war in Iraq around that time. The, the Yugoslavia was falling apart. Everyone was concerned that the Soviet Union would become um, the uh, Yugoslavia with nukes. Uh, in the Soviet Union, the year started with Gorbachev, who is generally remembered as someone who refused to use uh, force against against peaceful population, actually using force in the Baltic states against, against the drive toward independence of those republics. It is followed by the coup against Gorbachev in August of 1991. Uh, what follows after that is Ukraine declares its independence, and uh, by the end of the year, Gorbachev resigns, and the international community recognizes the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, this is this is a really, really, really turning point. One of my colleagues, Stephen Kotkin, wrote a book, uh, not focused on '91, but '91 was important part of that. Of his book and the title is Armageddon Averted. So the the Cold War ended without without nuclear Armageddon. Yeah. But also the uh, Yugoslavia with nukes that many people were afraid of didn't happen on the territory of the Soviet Union. So um, Russia, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan emerged as nuclear de facto, if not the Euro uh, nuclear states. Uh, but the the divorce at that time happened really in, in a peaceful way, and the general impression was that we we uh, as as a um, humanity as a whole somehow managed to learn lessons from the disintegration of other empires, mm-hmm. which were very bloody, yeah. and that didn't happen in 1991. Very- so so the idea was the progress, the end of history, the end of history in terms of the. Uh, victory of liberal democracy, but also end of history in terms of the end to the bloody wars and to the bloody disintegrations of, of the empires. Hello, it's Peter here, and it's time for a word about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. Spring is now in full swing. The days are getting longer, and it's the ideal time of year to get out exploring. In fact, as I speak, That is exactly what ACE are doing. To give you a sense of the range of tours they conduct, let me tell you about their ones for June alone. You can cruise along Czech rivers with them and enjoy the music and art of Prague. You can head further east to tour the citadels of Transylvania. If music's your thing, then you can head to the Bach Festival in Leipzig or the Olbra Festival in Suffolk. Then there's tours to all the charming corners of the British Isles, to the St Magnus Festival on Orkney, or to view Irish castles, or to discover Roman Anglesey, or to learn about the churches of Norfolk, or the artists of Cornwall. If you're after a bit more sun than our temperamental islands can safely promise, then you could always jet off to learn about Northern Greece with the expert guide, Andrew Wilson. Find the tour that's perfect for you at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Holidays for the culturally curious. Yeah, it's a very strange end to the Cold War. Again, one that 
people probably didn't see coming. You've got another quote here from early on in the book where you say, I find it hard to think of any, any event more strange and startling and at first glance more inexplicable than the sudden and total disintegration and disappearance from the international scene, primarily between 87 and 91 of the Soviet Union. And this is, it, it's, it's a massive, <laughs> it's a massive puzzle in a way. But you mentioned a few of the events that we're going to look at already. So, um, uh, may I jump in now? Because the, the, what you quoted is, I am quoting somebody else. Oh, yes. Which is Judge Karen. So it's not just me saying that. Yeah. This is saying a person with, who had seen a lot from, from World War. Um, uh, from World War II to, to, to the Cold War, and that's that's how he looked at the developments of 1981. Yeah. And I read a book recently called 1983, which was subtitled The World, the, the, the Year the World Almost Ended. Yes. And um, it was also the year that I was born. It could have been my beginning and end as well, because the, the Cold War was getting very, very hot. This was the year of the, the Korean airline uh, crash. Uh, ex excellent book. I read it as well. Yeah. Not one for uh, for good night's sleep, I'd say. No, no. Um, one one really weird um, bit of uh, political dynamic in in the well in Moscow at this point anyway is this kind of weird joint leadership of um, Gorbachev being you know the Secretary General and the emergence of another character who we became more familiar with as the decade went on, Boris Yeltsin who was um, originally the mayor, wasn't he, and he was promoted to become president. Really interesting dynamic between those that we might get onto in a moment. But first of all, tell me, this is your first scene, tell me about the coup or the attempted coup of August that year. This is something that uh, I wrote about, but maybe even more importantly that, that I witnessed a good part of that coup. I arrived to Moscow on the morning of August 20th to get, uh, August 19th, uh, to get on the plane on the next day on August 20th to fly to Canada, where I was invited as, as a visiting professor at that time. And uh, uh, I took train. The Soviet Union was a huge country, bigger than today's Russia, but all international flights were leaving from just one place, Moscow, the Sheremetyevo Airport. So, from all over the Soviet Union, you have to you have to go to Moscow to get on the international uh, flight. The morning when we were already entering the city, I heard that there was a, a radio translation from the from the Justin cubicle. Uh, that was a decree signed by the vice president of the Soviet Union, Yanayev. Um, His last name was Yanayev. It became clear that a coup could have place in, in the Soviet Union. They declared that Gorbachev was sick, that there was a committee of almost national salvation that was taken over uh, government. And I remember that... Uh, in, in my neighbors, there was complete silence. So no one was saying anything because uh, during the Gorbachev era, the period of so-called glasses to open a start. So people were much more open in expressing their views. But there is those news, nobody would say anything. It was clear that people didn't approve, at least people in my, in, in my <laughs> railway car didn't approve what, what they heard, didn't approve what happened. 
but they knew quite well that it's now under these new circumstances it would be very dangerous to express express their opinion. And uh, once once I um, arrived in Moscow, I was surprised by a different by a different reaction. There were people actually marching on the streets. There were people reading the appeal from uh, Boris Yeltsin that were put on the wall near the railway station in Moscow, where I arrived. And the police was passing by and actually doing nothing to to, to stop people. So really in Moscow, I felt a very, very different different attitude. People were prepared to to fight and uh, uh, fight not in in the sense of today's wars, but as, as, as a civil protest. Really, Yeltsin was was their leader. Uh, so I, I also remember a very, very interesting and, and kind of a symbolic scene that on one of the streets in downtown Moscow, a column of the um, armored vehicles was was moving, and then a crowd appeared, mostly of young people. And the impression was like all of them came out of the McDonald's restaurant that was just opened in Moscow a few years before that. So it was this kind of a young pro-Western <laughs> group of, of Moscovites that was stopping the, the Soviet army, not tanks, but the, the, the uh, personnel vehicles that, that were there. So it, 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 it was very symbolic. Of course, we didn't know what, what would happen. I left Moscow on, on the second day of the August 20th. And uh, by the time uh, I was invited to teach one semester in Canada, by the time I arrived there and, and then was invited for an interview, we already knew that the coup collapsed. So that was that was one moment of, of history that I not, not only wrote about, but I witnessed it. But so you you witnessed it. You were there. You can um, you can frame these scenes for us. Obviously, as an academic and as a reader, you'll have learned more about what was going on at the time. Can you tell us what was happening behind the scenes? One thing um, that, uh, of course, is very clear today: um, Gorbachev uh, wasn't sick. <laughs> He was he was he, he was uh, uh, arrested. Uh, really, was put under under arrest, and the plotters really allowed Yeltsin to come from his dacha, from his mm. residence outside of Moscow, come to Moscow to the building of the Russian Parliament, basically entrench himself there and his supporters, and that became the center of the resistance. But they allowed to do that because they knew that Gorbachev and Yeltsin were sworn enemies by that time. And they counted on Yeltsin's support against Gorbachev. And Yeltsin actually was smart enough to turn things around and said that actually he was there to defend the Constitution and he was there to defend Gorbachev. By the time he took that position, it was already too late for the plotters to arrest him. They could easily do that early in the morning. But now they faced the the necessity, the need to storm storm the the, the parliament building. And eventually the faction started among the military, among the KGB at that time. And the defection started because Yeltsin appealed to them uh, in a way that Gorbachev never did. He said that basically uh, he wanted them to defend Russia. 
Mm. Gorbachev still represented the Soviet Union, the empire. Yeltsin emerged there not just as a Democrat, but he had won because he emerged as a, also Russian nationalist. Mm. And that's something that was really we know now. It was not fully understood back mm. then and very much overlooked by most of the literature on that subject. For that, the victory of Yeltsin was also victory of, at that time, liberal form of Russian nationalism over this more, more imperial Soviet thinking and structure about the future of that space. It's interesting to get this look at Yeltsin um, at this moment as well, because he's obviously a crucial figure, a dynamic actor, if you like, in these events. And we so frequently remember him as the, the drunken old man who became a symbol of the sick Russia of the 1990s. There's a great story, actually, I just remembered that John Major once told about meeting um, Yeltsin. And he said, if you could sum up the state of Russia in one, um, in one word, what would you say? This was at one of these summits. And Yeltsin said, good. And he said, if you could sum up the state of Russia in two words, what would you say? And he said, not good. <laughs> which, is, which is a wonderful kind of, um, I suppose, caricature of, of that time and how we think of Yeltsin. But he was obviously just at this point on manoeuvres, we'd say, he's got an idea about how things are going. And also Gorbachev is losing control. Yes, yes. And, and, and Yeltsin was uh, one of very few former members of the communist uh, establishment who, who could talk to people, who had this instinct, understanding of where the situation was more, where people were. He had this ability to, to really focus, to, to work 24 hours a, a day uh, during a relatively short periods. And then immediately after, after what, what happened, he, he defended Russian democracy. He, he, he defeated, he defeated uh, the, the uh, coup. And uh, a few days later, he just takes a break <laughs> and goes to Baltics, right? So the, the, there is ability to mobilize and, and to, to become this really very important figure and, and embodiment of, of the aspirations at that time of democratic Russia in particular. But uh, there were also he, he suffered from depression as well. So the, the, some some elements of that you see even before 1991, and then it became it became much worse. And then he is remembered at the end of his life just as an old, mm. as you said, as an old like caricature. Yeah. Yes. Let's follow you to um, Canada though, because that's where you were flying off to, and yes. that's where we're going to go for our second scene. But we're going to be in Edmonton. Uh, late August again, so around the same time point. Um, what happened there at that time that's really important to the events of 1991? One thing that happened uh, after the coup, after the collapse of the coup, was uh, that Ukraine declared its independence on the 24th of August of 1991, that was a very important development because Ukraine was the second largest republic. And the parliament, Ukrainian parliament that declared independence was at that time dominated by the communists. So once Ukraine did that, you saw the declaration of independence, but almost every other, every other post-Soviet republic. So that, that became a very important uh, development and process. The question was whether actually Ukrainians meant that or not. 
uh, Gorbachev would say to President Bush at that time, everyone declares itself to be independent, but not everyone leaves the Soviet Union. So it, it, it was a lot of confusion what, what those words meant. Yeah. Uh, President Bush in early August arrived in Kiev and said that we support those who uh, want freedom, but don't confuse freedom with suicidal nationalism, which means actually stay with Gorbachev, don't leave the Soviet Union. So there was a lot of confusion. And uh, I arrived in Canada, Western Canada. I was invited as a, a professor to teach for one semester at the University of Alberta. And uh, the city of Edmonton at that time is um, really in very festive mood, uh, a big uh, uh, part of the population there and that part of, of Canada, of Ukrainian background and immigrants coming from the late 19th, the, the 20th century. And they're celebrating 100-year anniversary of uh, Ukrainian immigration to Canada. The Prime Minister of Canada, um, Brian Mulroney, arrives into that city. There, there is a huge, huge gala and, and, and all sorts of festivities, and I'm invited there. And there, Brian Mulroney makes a historic declaration for Canada-Canadian politics, but for Western in general. He says that if Ukrainians vote for independence at the referendum, and Ukrainians already decided that there would be a referendum on December 1st, 1991, Canada would recognize that independence, which was extremely important factor. The Americans were not there yet. Americans would not be there for, for a few months. A month in the conditions of 1991 was equal maybe to 10 years or something like that. That's how fast things developed. So I was there just a few days after the coup, uh, sitting in that, it seems to me, it was called Jubilee Auditorium where that huge gathering was was happening, Mulroney delivering that speech and huge applause. Uh, and uh, that was that was already a very different development. The coup was one thing uh, and and, uh, and, and uh, collapse of the coup. And then the second one was the the start of this movement toward independence, not just of Ukraine because Ukraine, set a precedent for the majority of others. Is it the first time almost that you could glimpse this new future, that you'd had, I suppose, a legitimization from such a, an important um, politician saying, yes, this can happen. If they want it to happen, it can happen. That's, that's how I look at that now. At that moment, it was so surreal. Yeah, and so many things were happening at the same time that Canada will rec would recognize but what the vote would be, what would be the position, what would happen. So there was, there was this mm. exciting moment. I remember everyone was excited, but did I and the rest of, of, of people around me believe that the, the referendum would deliver the, the results of more than 90% of the, uh, those who took part in the, in the referendum voted for independent, whether, whether the results of the referendum would be honored and what would happen with the Soviet Union, 
whether the Soviet Union would be still around or there was so, so much uncertainty. So there was euphoria, there was excitement, but in a sense, uh, seeing the future, yeah. I, I didn't see it at that you time. You could barely dare to dream, I imagine. But I think some of the statistics, so we might as well talk about the referendum now, because it's the in-between this moment and what you're going to talk about at the end. The turnout exceeded 84% of eligible voters. More than 92% chose independence. Even residents of the Donbass voted quite like kind of heavily. I think 84% in the Donbass. Yes. Uh, Crimea that we talk so much about. You've got a whole chapter about Crimea. Mm. Even that voted for independence. So yeah, it was 50, an um, overwhelming result, wasn't it? 54% in the Crimea, where the, the majority of the population, two-thirds, were ethnic Russians. Mm. Uh, even high in Sevastopol, the, the base of the of the Soviet and then later Russian Navy, fifty seven percent. That was that was really very important, uh, not just in terms of the Ukrainian position, but also for the uh, for the, the question of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, because Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Nobel Prize winner and a big inspiration for Putin's imperialistic policies later. At that time, uh, published an article saying that, okay, we have to count results of referendum region by region, and if there is no majority, those regions should should actually stay with Russia. Uh, One week after the referendum, the newly elected Ukrainian president, Leonid Kravchuk, meets in Belarus with Boris Yeltsin. And uh, Boris Yeltsin asks him, what, the majority, even in Donbass? <laughs> and, and Kravchuk says, yes, in Donbass as well. And the results of, of referendum really sealed the fate of the Soviet Union. Uh, because uh, Yeltsin, Gorbachev before that, and now Yeltsin were not prepared to continue with this old-fashioned imperialist Soviet model without the second largest partner. Yeltsin explained more than once to President George H.W. Bush, um, and we have this on record in the, in the American archives, that Russia was going to recognize independence of Ukraine because without Ukraine, Russia would be uh, outvoted in the, this truncated Soviet Union by uh, Central Asian Muslim republics. So the reference was to the fact that, okay, Ukrainians were Slavs and Ukrainians were Christians and and Eastern Christians. But what he was also not talking about, that it was too expensive for Russia to continue that that experiment. And um, the Soviet Union is dissolved one week after the Ukrainian referendum. Ukrainians were the only republic in the Soviet Union that had a referendum. So by voting, 84% participated, 92 out of those voted for independence. They decided the future not just of Ukraine. They decided the future of Kazakhstan. They decided the future of Uzbekistan. They decided the future of Russia. And that's why any attempt actually to turn the clock back really depends on Ukraine. There's more I'd love to ask you about that, but we'll just have this concluding scene because... It really is one of these moments of uh, political theatre that belongs even today to Russia, but back in Soviet times as well. And this is the televised address that you remember watching on Christmas Day um, of 1991, 
where were you? What do you remember of this? And who, who was the, the address from if people don't know? So I, I left Moscow for, for this one semester in, uh, in Canada on the 20th of August, and it, it was a, a round trip ticket. On the 20th of December, I was returning back to Moscow and then going to Ukraine. And already in Canada, I remember watching CNN, and there were these first reports that Gorbachev probably will be resigning sometime after after this Belavezhia agreement that was December's, December 8th of, of, of uh, 1991, with Yeltsin and Kravchuk and uh, leader, leader of Belarus, Shushkevich, Stanislav Shushkevich, decided to dissolve the Soviet Union. So the, the, the CNN was already reporting that something might be happening. Things were changing, but but still it, it all looked surreal. So Gorbachev resigning, is it possible? That, that's what you want it's to- all you'd ever known. That, that, that's what you want yeah. to happen, but is, is it even possible? Yeah. Then, then I arrive in Moscow on the 20th and, and stay with a friend of mine and there are uh, I, I certainly remember TV reporting on the meeting now, not only of the Slavic republics, but also Central Asian republics. And they decide to support this resolution for the dissolution of the Soviet Union, creating of the Commonwealth of Independent States. And then I get on the train and get back to, to Ukraine, to Dnipro, and I, I, I watch Gorbachev. With Gorbachev giving his uh, his speech, resignation speech, that was really, really, really surreal. That was that was the end of the month. That was the end of the very eventful month, the end of the year and the end of an era. So I I, I wasn't there, but I, I, I watched it and I, I saw different different aspects. And of course Canada almost immediately becomes the first Western country recognizing independence of Ukraine and the fact of dissolution of the Soviet Union. One last question for you. After all of this great explanation and um, thought about 1991, if I gave you the opportunity to have a memento from that year, a bit of tangible history that you could have to remind you of those events, is there anything that you think really speaks to the times? Yes, I would, I would love to have back that round trip ticket that I got for flight from Moscow on the 20th of August and came back on, on December 20th to witness the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I don't have it. I have my passport. I, I wish I wish I would, with, with stamps. I wish I would have that ticket. What a wonderfully personal and significant revealing document. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it enormously. Thank you very much for coming on Travels Through Time. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure and I certainly enjoyed the trip. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Serhi Plochy about his new book. It's titled The Russo-Ukrainian War and it's available in hardback right now. For more as ever, do head to our website, which is at tttpodcast.com. Thank you for listening today. Goodbye. <laughs>